space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Ladies and gentlemen, for many Star Trek fans like myself, we missed out not having the opportunity to meet all the original members of the cast of the original Star Trek series. If Spock represented Jim Kirk's logical and reasonable side, then it was Dr. McCoy who represented Kirk's emotional and empathic side. The character was played brilliantly by the late, great DeForest Kelly, who left us in 1999. We we may not be able to talk with him, but we have the next best thing, a fan who became great friends with Mr. Kelly, who enjoyed a a friendship with him for 30 years. Here to talk about her book and her friendship with DeForest Kelly is uh, Ms. Christine Smith. Ms. Smith, welcome, and thank you for taking time to talk with us in the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, yeah, we're, I mean, uh, we can't talk to DeForest, but you, you got a chance to know him real well, and uh, um, that, that's awesome. Yeah. So was Star Trek what got you into being a fan of DeForest Kelly, or were you a fan of his past work as well? Well, of course, I had seen him. I was I grew up in the 50s, so I saw him as a cowboy before I ever saw him in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really start following him until Star Trek. Mm. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't even know he was a cowboy, so that tells you how... Oh, <laughs> so, oh yeah. So, yeah. have you seen... Miles, have you seen his cowboy movies? Uh, I, I recall seeing him in some cowboy shows. Okay, yeah. all right. Mm-hmm. But, em, if have you? If you haven't seen him as a cowboy, you cannot understand how hard it was for Gene Roddenberry to get him as Dr. McCoy. Okay. Because they didn't believe anybody would believe him as a good guy. He was such a bad guy. He was such a scoundrel in movies that they didn't believe anybody would believe him as a good guy. And he wasn't a scoundrel in Star Trek? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) He was a curmudgeon in Star Trek. He wasn't a scoundrel. He was a scary dude when he was a cowboy. Oh, okay. He was in Bonanza. I remember that. He was. I used to watch Bonanza all the time with my dad. Yeah, he was in episodes of Bonanza. He didn't star in Bonanza. Yeah. Right. Okay. Very good. But I remember, I remember in the early '70s when they Bonanza was rerunning, and so and so was um, the original series, and uh, the Virginian. That was the other show yes. that yes. I loved watching with my dad. Yeah. And um, I think Duel he was in that like once or twice. Yes, Duel at Shiloh, and um, another one where he was. A drunk doctor. Len- Leonard Nimoy was in that too. Yes, <laughs> the name of that show. That is terrible. Anyhow, <laughs> I'm just impressed you know the names of any of those shows. So, I'm, yeah. so that's awesome. Well, the, so the, the Bonanza episodes was the decision where he played a doctor, the honor of Cochise where he played a guy who had poisoned a bunch of Indians, and Ride the Wind where he portrayed very very small role in that one. I won't even mention that one particularly. He was a reporter, I believe, in that one. Okay, very good. Well, you know, it. this is, uh, I mean, your journey with DeForest Kelly has, has been amazing. I mean, so much so that, you know, when he passed, you were you were there. And that's a testament to a growing friendship over the years. And that had to start somewhere. When, when was the first time that you encountered DeForest Kelly? I met Dee um, during the second year of Star Trek. 
he was going to be in a parade at Wenatchee, Washington, and I thought I would just drive over there and watch him go by. But as luck would have it, the limousine that was carrying, that would be carrying them, was parked alongside the street there when I parked my car. And I thought, you know, if I loiter shamelessly, maybe I'll get a chance to actually meet him and not just watch <laughs> him go by. So I did that. And Dean Carolyn eventually came out and got into the car, and I was a little bit nervous because, you know, when you, you don't know if when you're going to meet an actor if they're going to disappoint you or not. A lot of them are so full of themselves or whatever, they really don't see you. Mm-hmm. And so I stayed back just a little bit and watched him interact with other fans and realized what an absolute soul-to-the-earth gentleman he was and how appreciative he was. Because he did have a career before Star Trek, but he didn't become a household name until Star Trek. So he was extremely appreciative. Hmm. He was an appreciative person anyway. But when Star Trek came up, it was like awesome, you know. So I watched him for a little while, and then I finally screwed up enough courage to ask him for um, his autograph. Just spent a few minutes there. And on the way home, I realized I hadn't met anybody as quintessentially gentlemanly as he was. He acted like he respected me enormously, as scared, witless as I was. Um, And I knew there was a creative writing assignment due. So I wrote a creative writing assignment called, how clever is this, The Real McCoy, about meeting DeForest (laughs) Kelly. And I gave it to my teacher and he read it and he said, Chris, this is excellent. I think you should send a copy of this to Mr. Kelly. And I just balked mightily. I said, you know, gosh, you know, I don't write to TV stars. And he said, look, if you impress somebody as obviously as he impressed you, wouldn't you want to know? And I went, yeah, but he's an actor. He probably hears it 10 times a day. And he just basically pulled rank on me and said, send it. And, you know, he, teachers can write you down for disobeying them and, you know, all kinds of neat things other than your grades. <laughs> so I thought, I better do that. <laughs> right, so right. So I did it. A couple of months later, I get this letter back from D. We were so impressed with your article that we sent it to TV Star Parade, a New York publisher, and they want to use it as a special holiday piece. So he launched <laughs> my writing career. That's awesome. My parents That's amazing. Had- my parents had to peel me off the ceiling. I was so excited <laughs> and scared because I'm this kid living in the sticks. I've always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know, you know, gee, do I really have what it takes? And I worried the whole time that it wouldn't, you know, measure up that an editor would change it so much that it would make me embarrassed, you know, and the editor didn't change anything. So it basically was my confirmation that you are a writer and they continued to encourage me to write. Yeah, so... Well. During the six months it took between the time I got uh, and the thing was published, I was writing back and forth to Dee and Carolyn, thanking them, and they said, gee, we hope this makes you a celebrity in your own right in Cleelum and this whole nine yards. When it finally came out, I wrote him again, thanking him again, and at about that point, my mother says, okay, Chris, you've been, man has been very kind to you. Don't drive him crazy with your incessant letters, because I'm a writer. <laughs> I, I had 25 pen pals at the time. And I figured she was right. I was going to drive him nuts if I didn't. I stopped writing for years. I thought, okay, yeah, you don't want to drive him crazy. So then the 20th anniversary comes up, 18 years later, and I thought, you know, I owe this guy a long overdue thank you for having launched my writing career. And he was going to be in a convention in Spokane, 20th anniversary convention. So I went over there, sent him this little note, I owe you a long overdue hug for launching my writing career, and then I 
scared myself almost out of going. I said, good Lord, you sound like a 17-year-old again, you know? You sound like <laughs> a Star Trek, the starstruck, you know, teenager again. But I decided, yeah, I'm going to go. I took my little 10-year-old nephew who was a Star Trek fan, and we stayed at a KOA campground. Unknown to me, Dee and Carolyn were trying to find me all that weekend. They figured I was at a hotel somewhere, and they were calling all these hotels trying to find me and reconnect with me. I'm in a KOA campground. They didn't, hadn't thought of that. So Dee didn't speak until uh, that Sunday, and he got on stage, and I was you know, in the audience with 3,000 other people, and he read his poem, and then you know, he talked a little bit about the Challenger, which had blown up that year. And I saw him start to look at his watch, and I thought, if you don't do it now, I really didn't want to do it in you know, a throng of fans because I thought it would like stop the whole thing for me to do this personal thing. But I saw him starting to look at his watch, and I thought, you know, if I, you don't do it now, you're going to miss your opportunity. So I raised my hand. Don't ask me. I do not know why he picked it. There were a thousand hands up. He did not recognize me, he told me later. But he picked me. And I said, I just wanted to thank you for launching my writing career. And I said, or he said, are you Chris? And I said, yes. And he goes, I've been looking all over for you. Aww. Aww. So this Phil Donahue type comes rushing, you know, down the hallway with this microphone and sticks it in my face. And I'm like, speechless. I cannot believe this is happening. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I think, well, okay. And I whisper into the mic, hoping no one will hear except him. And I give you a hug. And he goes, you bet, come on up here. So I climbed up on the stage and gave him a pat on the back, and he said, don't lose touch, don't lose touch. I met Carolyn also that weekend. Um, I was in the lobby the next morning talking to a computer programmer from Seattle, also another Star Trek fan, and I heard this huge intake of breath from the fans, and I looked across clear across the other end of the room I was in, and Dee and Carolyn were coming out, heading to the limousine that would take them back to the airport. And I just stood there, and Dee spotted me clear across the room from where he was, and he goes, Chris, good morning. And I'm like, I can't believe this. <laughs> and he grabs Carolyn's hand, and he starts to bring her through this throng of people in my direction. And I thought, okay, you know, you need, really do need to go, you know, meet them halfway. So I went, and Carolyn took both of my hands, and she said, we always wondered what happened to the little girl who wrote so well. And I told him that I'd been building restaurants with my mom and dad all across the country, and we were living in a fifth-wheel trailer. We really didn't have an address. We really, there was no way. I didn't want to tell him the truth that my mom had told me to knock it off. <laughs> and that was partly true. We really were building restaurants and really didn't have a, an address for all those years. So I told her the, the, the story that sounded a little better, other than my mom and dad told me to knock it off and not drive you crazy. <laughs> so anyhow, she gives her address to me and she says don't lose touch we want to send us the articles you've had published um so i started to do that i was working with in the animal welfare industry at that time and i was writing all of these kind of depressing and heart-rending articles for that you know leg hold traps and many crises facing animals so i didn't want them to just send them all this tear jerky stuff so I'm, whenever I wrote them a letter, I made it as funny as I possibly And we started really to be 
pen pals, don't lose touch. Keep us writing. Send us your articles. And they just started to encourage me to stay in touch, and I did. That was mm. the beginning. Wow. There's yeah. not many people that can say that their careers were launched by uh, McCoy. <laughs> by the good doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's a mind-blowing story. I don't know that I ever would have written. He gave me permission to do that, and he also gave me permission to write his biography, but I'm not a biographer. I'm not an interviewer. I'm not particularly a researcher. Mm. Uh, um, I couldn't do what you do. You're an interviewer. You know how to do that mm. thing. I'm really not. Mm. Um, so I gave that to Terry Rio. I gave her all of this wealth of material he had given me for the bio, and I gave her that. She went out and she interviewed all these people, people he'd grown up with when he was a kid, people he was in the military with, the whole nine yards. And then she comes back to me after she's interviewed everybody, and she says, okay, you were with him the last three months of his life. I need to interview you. And I said, okay. She asked me a question I couldn't answer, and that's what actually got me to write my book. She said, how did you go from becoming a fan on the outermost reaches of Phantom to being at his bedside when he passed away? And I thought, well, that's only something Dean Carolyn could answer. I don't know what was inside their minds. I mean, you know, that's really. And she goes, Chris, you know the answer. You just have to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And because I'm a journalist, I've been keeping journals and writing. I went back into all of my journals and just connected the dots. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, I realized I had enough, uh, enough information. I thought maybe I had 100 pages. But I figured I had enough information to really write a book about what that association was like. It turned out the original manuscript was 587 pages long, wow. single-spaced. I mean, I had more stuff than I... It's amazing what you forget if you don't write it down. Right. Because you think, <laughs> you know, the, the times I was with D, you would think you would never, ever forget a single word that was said or and the times they called up or whatever, whatever. Carolyn was calling me three, four, five, six times a week. And I was keeping, you know, I was keeping all this information in my journal about what we talked about. But, heck, if I hadn't had those journals, I would not have remembered a tenth of what went on. That's so amazing. So those journals were a lifesaver for me when it came time for me to write this book. Hmm. I'm like, I don't even remember that. Oh, my gosh, you know. Oh, and wow. then it flips all your synapses and you remember how you were feeling at that time and the whole nine yards. If you don't keep a journal, you should. Yeah. They I do keep a list. Keep a list. I have yes. an, my, Siri and I are very good friends. <laughs> I will I I'll have Siri remind me. I'll say something and it'll my phone will remember it and then I'll have it remind me like 6 hours later and I uh -huh. I it tells me and I'm I don't remember saying that, but I guess I did. Yeah. <laughs> very so, very true. Yeah. Well, with your time with him that you got to spend talking to I, and but I love that you just call him D. Hey, Dee. Yeah. Hey, Dee. Hey, Kelly, Super Mr. Awesome. Um, <laughs> with your time with him, I mean, Star Trek was such a such a pivotal thing in his life. Uh, I mean, for him, and, and for many people, because, I mean, I, I was a fan since I was tiny, since it's the first episode I ever saw, and the dedication of fans is 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 insurmountable. Um, I, I'm curious what how 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 Dee. <laughs> yeah. I can't even say it. Um, what he thought of all of that, and just not, not really a fanaticism, but just this general like respect and love for everything with the two words Star Trek. Everybody called him D, except uh, Walter Koenig, and he only called him D Forrest out of immense respect for him. 
everybody called him D. Anybody who got to know him at all, the fans called him D from the stage even. So, I mean, from their, you know, places in the audience. But anyhow, um, D loved Star Trek. He loved Star Trek fans. He was not necessarily a big science fiction fan, but he loved the fact that that show went places where other shows couldn't go because it was science fiction and they could talk about issues that normally the censors would not have allowed them to go to. So he thought it was really way ahead of its time. He loved his fans. He didn't have to do conventions, but he loved his fans. So many of them wrote to him and told him that they had become a doctor or a nurse or some kind, gone, gone into some kind of a helping profession because of what, because of the inspiration of Dr. McCoy. And so he said, you know, I just go out and I, I, I'm saying this in my own words. I mean, he has many McCoys all over in all of the hospitals and technicians and stuff. And he said he felt that was his biggest legacy was the fact that he was able to inspire people to actually go out and help. He wanted to be a doctor as a young man. He also wanted to be a cowboy as a young man. And he grew up to be both. Yeah, there <laughs> yeah. you go. Yeah. That's awesome. And he was such a wonderful, loving human being. Um, he was just totally soul of the earth. His father, who was a Baptist minister, wanted him to be a minister. Mm. And Dee was spiritual, but he wasn't religious. And I always say, Dee had a ministry. It was us. I mean, he just loved us to the core of his being. Every fan felt beloved when they were in his presence. And he always tried to help people. If he saw that they had a gift or a natural talent, he always um, encouraged them. Hmm. I mean, he would, a young gal would stand up at a convention and say, I want to be an actress. And she, he goes, you have to want it really, really bad. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not easy. Um, but he said, if that's what you want, you do it. And he was just very fatherly, grandfatherly, and every kind of wonderful, you know. He, was, he felt completely safe to be around, you know. He was just there for you. He was fabulous. Well, you know, uh, you mentioned that he wanted to be a cowboy and then at one point a doctor growing up, and he ended up in acting. Uh, and his father kind of in the process also wanted to be a minister, uh, there's a lot of expectations as a young kid and maybe as a young boy. What what steered him into the, and I don't know, I, I assume you know this, what, what steered him into the acting career? He kind of fell into that. He went out to Long Beach, and he was on a beach one day, and a talent scout came by and said, you're a good-looking young man. Would you like to be in the movies? And he says, not particularly. He says, well... <laughs> You can meet some girls. And he goes, oh, hey, sign me up. <laughs> Actually, that's where he met Carolyn, his wife of 54 years. Oh, wow. They were in a play together. Yeah. But he was like, yeah, not productive. But when he said, yes, sir, and he had this real thick Georgia accent, they said, well, we're going to have to do something about that. And they sent him to a voice coach, a Lorraine Day, I think her name was, or Miss Day, anyhow. And he said, they said, go, you know, go, go to the Long Beach Theater Group and get as much work in as you can. And while he was there, Paramount or some talent scouts spotted him there. He was really young at that time. They didn't have young leading men the way they do nowadays. The leading men were Clark Gable, you know, middle-aged men. Mm -hmm. So they said, you just stay there and you just keep, you know, honing your craft. Um, and, you know, at some point you're going to be ready for this. And that's how it started. He, uh, when the war, when World War II came in, um, he was at first assigned to Roswell, New Mexico, 
where they were going to train him as a tail gunner. You know how about how long those people lasted. <laughs> and um, he was a radio control tower operator over there, and he landed planes there at the field. And then one day somebody said to him, uh, said, just put out this general thing, is there anybody here who's an artist? And he said, I'm an artist. And they said, yeah, right. And he says, no, I am. And he said, okay, draw me something. And D drew this sketch of a young guy smoking a cigarette. And the guy goes, well, hey, you really are. Okay, go in there. Hmm. And that gig caused him, his, his talent actually got him transferred back to Culver Studios, which was at the time called Fort Roach, Car Fort Hal Roach, because the military had taken it over. The Army Air Force had taken it over and turned it into like a barracks in a, in a military place where Clark Gable and Jimmy Stewart and Dee and other people were. So he spent his military career doing creative things like teaching military men how to survive plane crashes, how to, he, he did some tr Navy training films called A Time to Kill. He did uh, things on STDs. Um, he just did all this educational type stuff during the war, and he also was very involved building a big base relief map of the mainland of Japan because before computers, they had to actually, on this soundstage, build this huge base relief map of Japan so that when the pilots went in there, they would know where they were going. Hmm. So he ended up painting that big base relief map of Japan and the pilots who flew in told him later, it was just like we were flying over your map when we, when we went in. It was so, it was so accurate. Oh, cool. And it was a top secret thing at the time, but he was involved with that. Oh, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Not all, I mean, I mean, I'm interested as a Star Trek fan in DeForest Kelly's life, but just as everything you tell me about, I mean, just what a, what an interesting life this guy led. I mean, uh. I, I think his story would appeal to anybody. Um, Terry's book, Terry's bio of D is called From Sawdust to Stardust, the biography of DeForest Kelly, Star Trek's Dr. McCoy. You will get a very, very good overview of his life if you get that book. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mine is anecdotal about, you know, my association with D, but and very little of it is duplicated except where Terry mentions me in her book toward the end of his life. Um, there, there is very little duplication of material at all. So it, it's two good volumes to have. Hmm. Now you mentioned, um, you mentioned that uh, obviously well, we met, we mentioned a bunch of the other films that he's been in as well. And now obviously McCoy for many of us is his most notable role, but did he, did he have a favorite role among the other characters that he played? He loved playing rowdy cowboys. And he mentioned, especially Apache Uprising, where he was Toby Jack Saunders. Uh, he was a scary dude. I had a nightmare about that after seeing that role that he did. So that deep and that long of a friendship with, I can't even say D without giggling, because yeah. <laughs> with Mr. Kelly. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> being, being that close with him and his family for so long, I mean, did you, did you get to work with him at all? I didn't. I got to go to a studio once and watch um, some of the movie being filmed, 
And of course, I lived at a lot of conventions that he was at, and we were often designated to give him a little bit of grief at those places. So if you want to say we worked with him there, Adam Malin would say, look, you need to get D because he's always getting you from the stage. And so I asked Carolyn permission to do that, and she, she asked D, and he said, oh, yeah, whatever Adam wants, you go ahead. You just do whatever you think you need to do to D, or whatever Adam thinks you need to do to D, and, and it'll be okay. So, but no, I didn't work with him. I, I practically, I was with him the last two months of his life intensely, 16, mm. 17, 18 hour days. In fact, the last four days I, I didn't leave the hospital. Oh. So I worked with him as a personal assistant and caregiver, mm -hmm. but as far as working with him in the entertainment industry, no, I didn't. Okay. I helped actually, I was writing articles about him and having them published in various magazines other than that first real McCoy article I did one for grit magazine and some other magazines so mm -hmm. I guess you could mm -hmm. say that but it was remote over the phone this is what I wrote or can right. I write oh yeah do that yeah that kind of working together okay wow well and you and so we've been talking a lot just about your connection to D over the years um, and you have compiled all this into uh, a book that you uh, uh, wrote. Can you tell us a little bit about the book, maybe beyond what we've kind of talked about already, and maybe tell us too how listeners can go about, you know, acquiring a copy of that book. Okay, the um, the book is called DeForest Kelly Up Close and Personal: A Harvest of Memories from the Fan Who Knew Him Best, and it's basically the evolution of my association with him, where I was at first a fan on the outer motorists of Phantom and ended up at his bedside. I answered the question that Terry asked me. Right. Um, and it took me 300 and some pages to do that. There are also more than 40 pages of images inside that. There's also an audiobook version, which at the end of the audiobook version, I did narrate the book. Um, there is more than 15 minutes of actual voicemail messages from Dee and Carolyn and from Harv Bennett and A.C. Lyles, who did a lot of Dee's Westerns, and Tippi Hendren, and other people that, whose names you would recognize. So there, the, the audiobook has that feature that none of the other ones do. Almost all versions of this book have full color images inside except for one soft cover edition which has black and white images inside. I was trying to make versions that everybody could afford because mm. Amazon has Kindle and Amazon has two soft cover versions, but the minute you get a middleman in the middle, the prices go <laughs> skyrocketing. Excuse me. Yeah. <coughs> So at yellowballoonpublications.com, which is my website, you can actually get the audiobook version and, the, and a PDF version for a lot less because I didn't want the prices to be so high that people couldn't afford it. And uh, that's certainly, uh, I, know, I know as fans, we, lo we love when that happens. Right. Absolutely, really? yeah. <laughs> that is accessible to us. So that's great. That's awesome. And... Uh, and so they can go, and it's, is it yellow, it's, you said it's yellow brick media? Yellowballoonpublications.com. Okay, dot okay, com. And they go there and they can find all sorts of versions of this book. Yes. Yeah. And you've, and, and, and I guess anything else you've written too, that's also a part of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Dee told me I needed, I needed to write a book about my serval because Dee and Carolyn fell in love with him. He was an African wildcat that I got when he was five days old. He didn't know he was a cat, let alone a wildcat. But anyhow, um, I got him when he was five days old, and he lived 17 and a half years. And Dee wow. said, you need to write a book about him. 
And I went, Dee, I really don't think I should. And he says, why? I said, because I had one of those rare and unique <clears throat> stories with him that worked that worked out all right and had a happy happy ending other than the fact that he passed away of old age. But right. I said, most people who get wild animals do not have a happy ending. They end up eating the other pets or attacking a child or and they end up being farmed out to sanctuaries and for the rest of their lives looking for the person that they bonded with. So mm. I said, it's really not a good idea for people to have wild animals. And he goes, well, you know, if you tell the whole story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I still think you should tell the story. Mm. And I thought about that. I said, you know, yeah, I think I can do it if I tell the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because it'll convince people, okay, I have vicariously lived through this thing now with you. I don't think I really want to do that. And if you still love animals, then you can support the sanctuaries that mm -hmm. take in these abandoned animals and love them in that way so that they're getting the care they need, the proper care they need after they've been abandoned. Hmm. So that's one of the books. Um, there are There's a funny book called Floating Around Hollywood, which is all of the funny, ridiculous things that happened to me in Hollywood. Um, it's almost like Lucy Ricardo in Hollywood. If you read that book, you probably would never hire me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a fun book about all the the funny stuff that happened to me while I was working in Hollywood. Very good. Very good. That's awesome. I, you know <laughs> what? There's nothing better than a little Lucille Ball. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I always wanted to figure out how to, you know, where to go to school to do that. That's what I would love to do is make people laugh. <laughs> and this book, this book does a good job of that. You guys haven't read it yet, but I'm going to send you a PDF of it. Awesome. Um, you read it um, because it's mostly the last part is sad. I mean, the yeah. story ends bad. He passes away. No matter how much you love him, and all the good things you do for him, there's no way to save him. But Three quarters, more than three quarters of the book is an absolute laugh riot because we were always getting each other in some way or the oh, other, you know. That's awesome. He was a funny, funny guy. Even when he was in the hospital, we were having, you know, good times. Um, strangely, if my mother had brain cancer and she fell ill almost at the same time Dee did, but he didn't let me know because he knew I was handling her situation. He didn't want to compound my my grief. So she passed away in October of 1998, and then in February is when I found out that Dee was terminally ill with cancer hmm. of the next year. And he kept it from me for years because he knew I was doing this thing with my mom. So wow. when he finally called me in, he was actually in intensive care in a hospital, and um, that, that part of my life, I try to keep that pretty short. Because hey, you know what? It hurts, and you when you read it, oh, you yeah. cry, and it's it's not fun. No, but it's not. most of the book is because you fall so dearly in love with him, beyond knowing him as an actor, or you know, I wanted this book to confirm for everybody that DeForest Kelly didn't just seem to be a good man; he was a good man. And I wanted anybody who read this book to feel like they now knew DeForest Kelly. Not from afar, but like they actually knew him. And fortunately, the fans who have read it and talked to me said, Chris, I feel like I know Dee now. And I'm, that's exactly what I wanted to do. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. 
So, Christine, my understanding is you're also available for speaking engagement. So if, I w- if I'm a part of a con or I want to bring you in, yeah. how do I go about doing that? Just email me, Chris with a K, K-R-I-S, at wordwhisperer.net. All right. If you can, if you can fly me there and put me up in a hotel and feed me, I'll speak for free. Ooh, do you hear that? <laughs> hear that convention? Uh, uh, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> And have a table so I can actually sell books. Oh, there. yeah, obviously. Yes. So. Um, but if, if you'll get me there and put me up, then I would speak for free. I've done that before for other folks. Oh, we need to get Farpoint in on that. Farpoint, surely. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we have two cons that we're uh, kind of associated with loosely, and uh, and uh, we'll have to see. But put a plug I in there. I did it for the 40th and 45th anniversaries in Spokane, in Seattle. Uh, not in Spokane. In Belleville, Seattle. Uh, Sacramento and Las Vegas. Oh, good. So, um, I enjoy it. At first, I'm a little nervous, but after about <laughs> two minutes, the fans are all so fabulous. Awesome. These fans were as salt of the earth as he is. So, <laughs> I pretty quickly get unnervous and have just a wee of a time, and they do too. So, well, we just appreciate you joining with us and sharing your experience and a little bit about your book and, uh, Man, we just wish you the best. And, and my understanding, we're recording this night, and that this day is quite significant for D. Yes, it is. This is would have been D and Carolyn's seventy-first wedding anniversary. They were born. They were born. They were married on September seventh at four twenty, um, just about twenty minutes ago on this on the left side on the left coast where they were living at the time. Wow. So they've been married twenty minutes, seventy-one years ago. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. Christine shared this in an email. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. So, tomorrow's the 50th anniversary. That's so, right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Funny enough, tomorrow night, um, a bunch of us are going to the Air and Space Museum. Yes. To watch the, um, the Udvar Hazy Museum in Dulles, Virginia, to uh-huh. watch the remastered first aired episode of uh, STTOS. Uh, I'm super excited because I've really only watched it on the computer and that is, that on a black yeah. and white TV. So it's it's going to be amazing to see it in IMAX. And and wow, I'm super excited for tomorrow. I think the remastered episodes actually got a resurgence of DeForest Kelly fans because I don't so much hear from the older DeForest Kelly fans because they have seen him in interviews and stuff like that, and so they, they, they got to meet him, and I mean, they miss him like crazy, but the fans who saw him in remastered episodes, maybe parents and grandparents, after they got remastered, they weren't quite so antique looking anymore, and parents and grandparents started to share that series with the younger group now, and most of my new contacts are kids who are 12, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, and I think that's because of those remastered episodes. It just bl- blows them apart to find out that he is no longer alive, and they come to me and say, tell me, tell me what you know, so. That's awesome. I can tell you that my nephews started, my brother started them outright, and yes. they've seen all of Star Trek, all the Star Treks from wow. the beginning, since wow. I think they started when they were seven. Uh-huh. And yep. they he they watched every single and they they know all the characters they love. They just they yes. love the world. So I'm really glad yeah. to see this resurgence of Star Trek and 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 when you, when you think it's been I mean since I was 15 years old I'm 65 now. It's 50 years. I mean most of my life has been Star Trek, you know, and I can't imagine the world without Star Trek because the fans are positive. They're looking towards something that is 
you know, a positive future where we're all working together instead of at loggerheads with each other. So, I mean, it has an ethos about it that really, to me, is going to hold us together, mm -hmm. I think, um, better than almost anything else that's happening right now because the world has become so rude and crude and talking heads are screaming <sighs> at each other instead of, you know, boldly going together. And I think Star Trek people are really not into that, but they're into they're into the positive. Let's go let's go make some magic together yeah. in the world, and I love it. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for joining us. Thank you. And uh, we'll end the interview there. Thank you for the opportunity. Hey, it was I, lovely I, having you. Yeah, it was great chatting with you. Yeah, it was great meeting you. 